Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, ring that notification bell, and you will get notified when I post this interesting content each and every week. Been looking forward to having this conversation with my distinguished guest today. My guest is Dr. Benjamin Lewin. He's the author of the new book, Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. Dr. Lewin is a molecular biologist and the esteemed founding editor of the scientific journal Cell, which is recognized as the world's leading journal in biology. Dr. Lewin is also the author of the textbook Genes, which is considered to be one of the most influential textbooks on molecular biology. Lastly, Dr. Lewin is a fellow of the Royal Society and the American Academy of Arts and Science, and I'm pleased and honored to welcome Dr. Benjamin Lewin to the Elk Edric Show. Dr. Lewin, how are you? Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Really, really looking forward to our conversation. So uh, let me begin by asking you, um, your new book, uh, which I said is Inside Science, it takes a careful examination of science in general and you offer a critical and constructive view on some of the conventional notions of the scientific method. At this point of your distinguished career, why did you decide to write this book now? And what was your motivation behind uh, putting this out there for people to have conversations about? Well, I felt for a while that science is misunderstood by people who are not scientists. It's an important driving force in society, but there's a very sort of stylized view of it, almost, you might say, a caricature, in which non-scientists see it as a sort of black box. It delivers results, but they don't quite understand how it delivers results, so they don't um, have the proper proper tools to consider the limitations and the reality of those results. My big concern is if you don't understand the system by which science works, you're left in a place where you either have to accept or reject its results without any sort of critical analysis. I don't think that's a very good place to be. I don't expect this book to educate people in the details of science. In fact, I try as far as possible to avoid going into details, but I would like to explain the principles by which science works so that you, so that people can understand better um, what to make of, of, of science as scientific results emerge. For example, during the COVID pandemic, there were a lot of cries of follow the science, but many people didn't really understand the principles by which that science was working. And so following it wasn't as effective as it should have been. Hmm. Um, you write about a major change in science uh, during the past few years, which is the move from small teams, small in individuals, researchers, to uh, now we're seeing larger scale research teams uh, and gigantic you know, scientific projects. Why is that transition something you wanted to highlight? Because it implies a different way of doing science and thinking about it. So the, the traditional view of science is that you have a, a scientist or a small group of scientists who have some theory, they test the theory by obtaining data, they, they get data which support the theory or which contradict it, and they move on to the next theory. Um, science advances basically by asking questions and answering them. When you move to big science, you move to a different sort of activity um, in which no individual person, no single part of the group is really asking questions. They're just getting data as directed by the 
director of the, or, the, or the committee that leads the project. Um, for example, when Ernest Rutherford discovered the proton in 1908, he wrote a paper on which he was the sole author. When they discovered the Higgs boson in 2012, the paper had 1,000 authors. There's a great difference between one person having an idea, following it through, and working it out, and a thousand people collaborating to do it. This also goes hand in hand with the move, with the movement from um, what you might loosely call hypothesis-driven science, as I said before, testing theories, to the approach that you could call big data, in which instead of testing theories, you just amass huge amounts of data and then look to see what sort of correlations you can see in it. Um, different sort of activity, different sort of thought process. My concern about both these movements, big science and big data, is that people become, scientists become technicians rather than thinkers. And so you, you have to ask yourself, where will the next, where will the future big discoveries come from if people aren't thinking, but are basically just amassing data? Do, do you think that has something to do with uh, the shortening windows of time that people have now? I mean, I, I would take it back, you know, as you were mentioning, you know, several years ago, scientists may have had a longer time horizon to do their hypotheses, reach their conclusion, do their analysis, do the data collection, whereas now our society is much more rapid. So do you think that might have something to do with it or, or is that not maybe relevant? That's a very interesting thought. Um, and yes, there is a connection there. Uh, this this really goes to the way science is funded, which is uh, basically you have to get a grant to do the work. And in order to get the grant, you have to show some convincing evidence why it will work. And you need it really to work, because if it doesn't work, then when you apply for your next grant, they'll say, oh, well, your last one didn't work, so maybe we're not going to fund you this time. All of that means people are under pressure to produce results, to produce results more quickly and to produce results more certainly. And if... Um, that if, 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 you, if you conceive of a project which is, let us say, riskier, uh, exciting but riskier, you may not want to undertake it because your career can be placed in jeopardy if it doesn't work out. In other words, there is a tendency, because of the way science now works, for people to play it safe. Once again, that, that tends to undercut discoveries of things which are completely unexpected. Um, your book has a really deep analysis of the history of biotechnology, uh, particularly around some of the ethical and commercial challenges of patents related to recombinant DNA. Um, what lessons should we take away from your analysis? And do you think we're reaching a point of no return in terms of crossing some of those ethical guardrails in the research of human DNA, uh, particularly around commercial purposes? Well, let me take those two things separately. Um, Patents are a great system for encouraging research into uh, what you might call applied matters because it, it gives you some sort of guarantee that your work will be rewarded by um, some sort of payment down the road because people have to patent it. On the other hand, that's not necessarily how scientific research should work, where we look much more for transparency, openness, um, and the ability of anybody to reproduce it without any payment or, or, or qualification. So patents were very good for driving what you might call the biotech revolution, getting people to come into, um, in, into biotechnology and develop various products. They're not so good for encouraging 
um, scientific research in the long run. Ethical questions. I think the biggest ethical question now comes from the ability to do gene editing. Well, I suppose there are two, actually. There's gene editing and there are cloning, and they both pose ethical questions. Um, it's really hard to know where the line is. On the one hand, if you have someone with a disease like cystic fibrosis and you could cure it by editing the gene, why wouldn't you? On the other hand, do we really want to edit genes in the sense that we may affect the properties, the characters of our children and future generations? Somewhere in that arena is the lie. Um, there is a moratorium on using gene editing with people, at least for um, anything that may affect heredity, which I think is a very reasonable position to be. But will it hold up? I don't know. Yes, there are ethical questions here. Um, one of the things you take dead aim at, uh, you take a real critical and constructive view uh, on one of the bedrock tenets of science, which is publishing and peer review of scientific papers. Um, why did you decide to take a critical eye on what some believe to be a sacrosanct process for scientists? Well, first of all, I think the whole, the whole, the whole ethos of science is that everything can be questioned, and if you can question everything when you're doing a piece of research and your data, I don't see why you shouldn't question the very ethos of science itself. That should be part of the process. Um, the scientific paper is a myth. So a scientific paper almost always presents a really logical construction. These were the reasons for doing the work. This was the theory we tested. These were the results we obtained. This is what they mean along those lines. But the fact is that research doesn't pr proceed like that. It's not a straight line. It's much more of a zigzag. And much research is done along the lines of, we spotted something in our results that seemed a bit peculiar. We'll take a look and see what it means. And down the road, when you have found out what it means and you've got something interesting, you don't, you don't present it as a sort of stream of consciousness. This is how we happen to do the results. You put a logical framework around it. You know, we were so far-sighted that we, we realized from previous results that we should investigate, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a myth. It serves a purpose in that it makes, it, it makes science more intelligible. It makes it easier to follow. But nonetheless, it's a myth. Um, it has survived rather surprisingly with the movement into the electronic era. So um, where the, the constraints of a, of a scientific paper are very much limited, were very much designed with the notion of distribution through a print journal in mind. Now that you can, of course, publish things on the internet, make them available quickly and instantly without space constraints, most of the considerations that went into how a scientific paper was designed, or many of them anyway, no longer apply. But yet we are still publishing scientific papers in exactly the same way as before. The only difference is that we put it out in an electronic medium instead of on a piece of paper. Um, it seems to me that we should be rethinking this whole question of how do we communicate science, given the possibilities of the modern era. The reason that was, as a layperson, why that, was, that struck with me so well is because, um, you know, you watch court cases or you watch, you know, congressional hearings and they'll have an expert on. And the first thing they'll ask is, can you tell us which papers you've been published or what scientific journals you've published in? And yours? And that's that's kind of a barometer of their expertise. So if 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 taking that away or, or at least rethinking that, how would that affect, uh, you know, it, experts to be able to say, yes, I'm an expert. I've published here, published there, because it seems like you're you're kind of tearing away at that a little bit, especially for for lay people like me who that tends to validate someone's credentials. 
Mm. Well, this is part of the phenomenon called publish or perish. Mm. Your career depends on publishing papers. Getting tenure at a university depends on publishing papers. Getting your next grant depends on publishing papers. And there is a certain tendency here for quantity to overrule quality. Um, clearly, we have to continue to publish. Um, and clearly, that is the way you validate yourself. But it doesn't necessarily have to be as a single individual scientific paper in a journal. For example, we could instead have something like a Twitter thread. Um, you could uh, publish your, your, your first observations as you start out as a scientist. And then as you have more observations, you could move on to, to, to add to the previous thread and so on. This would allow other other features like, like comments to be added from other people, uh, ancillary data, and it would make for a much um, cleaner and more intelligible line of understanding someone's research. For example, um, whenever I read a scientific paper, it starts out with an introduction, which says, this is basically the state of play at this time. I can't tell you how many times I have gone back to look at the papers cited in that introduction and the introduction says something like, it is known that. And when you go and look at the papers that they cite, it's not exactly mm. known that. Something close to it is known. But, you know, the authors have put their spin on it. Now, if you have something like a thread instead of an individual paper, and remember, individual papers are published in a great variety of journals. So you get a paper in one scientific journal that will cite papers in maybe 50 other scientific journals. It's a pretty fair-sized effort to go find them all, look them up, and analyze them. Have a thread. You can go straight back to see what the author's earlier work was and see if it makes sense to you that the later work follows on logic. Hmm. Uh, another uh, really interesting aspect that you you write about is uh, the the concept of unpublished data. So someone publishes a paper, but there are unpublished data that may or may not support the, the, the conclusions reached by the paper. Um, you are very clear. You want to see some of this unpublished data. You want to see, I guess for us, we would say, show your work, right? I mean, you want to see yes. the unpublished data. So um, why is that so important that uh, the unpublished data uh, has an opportunity to be reviewed by, by peers? Well, you publish a paper you have some important piece of information in it, and it relies upon some other piece of information you haven't shown. How can we believe the second piece if we don't see the first piece? I came to this because we received, when I was editor of Cell, papers which were quite frequently having their reference list unpublished observation. And on one occasion, we asked the authors, we said, well, we need to see that unpublished observation. And the author said, oh, it's not really good enough to show to anybody. And I thought, well, we need a standard for unpublished, which is comparable to the standard for published. If we're going to accept what you say, you have to validate it. And um, unpublished observations are all very well as uh, support for a, a, a minor or trivial point. It's not all very well if it refers to something which is major in the paper. This, again, is something which is changed by um, electronic publication because now, many more things now circulate in unpublished format than they used to. It used to be very difficult to circulate anything that was unpublished. Um, basically, it would be a matter of you, you would have to send it individually to anybody you wanted to see it. Now there are um, so-called preprint servers, which put out what amount people basically test the waters by putting out observations they haven't yet published. 
And so we can get to see a lot more of the stuff. So this is this is not as much of a problem as it used to be because of the greater transparency resulting from electronic communication. Um, everybody's talking about artificial intelligence now. I mean, no matter what industry, what business you're in, uh, it's going to revolutionize or, you know, some say it's already has revolutionized our day to day lives. Um, talk to me about artificial intelligence, the impact it currently has, and maybe some of the ways that artificial intelligence will have an impact on biotechnology. And, and what concerns, if any, do you have about that uh, as it relates to, you know, future results for artificial intelligence and, and biotechnology? Well, artificial intelligence certainly has great potential to help in science. There are certainly cases where AI techniques um, can, can analyze large amounts of data more quickly and more effectively than human intuition. On the other hand, it's a bit worrying. Um, the point you made before, before about show your workings is really applicable to artificial intelligence. So if, I mean, the very, the very nature of it, artificial intelligence, the very name, implies that we don't really necessarily understand exactly how it works. So one of the major principles, in fact, maybe the founding principle of science ever since it has existed in its modern form, is that when you publish something, when you present your results to the community, um, you do it in such a way that they can be reproduced by anybody else who wants to do so. You have to go get the equipment, the, the, the materials and so on, but in principle, you can reproduce the experiment. Now, if you present results that are analyzed by artificial intelligence and you don't really know exactly how the artificial intelligence program works, how can you reproduce it? How can, how can we validate it? Um, and I think the fact that these AI programs at the moment have a tendency, it's called in the trade hallucination, a tendency to imagination, you might say, is a little worrying because suppose they apply it to the analysis of results. Um, when I was researching for um, another book I'm writing, I asked um, one of the AI programs to generate some references for me. And the references looked pretty good. They were authors who published in the field. They were journals that published papers in the field. And they were, the title sounded like they were exactly what I was looking for. But when I actually went to read those references, I found that none of them existed. The AI program had in effect predicted what would have been very interesting references, but they weren't real. So suppose it does the same thing when it analyzes your data. Suppose it says, well, it would be nice if, how do, how do we validate it? That is my big worry about artificial intelligence. Uh, another thing, Doctor, that you, you write about is the study of epigenetics. Um, what are epigenetics for lay people like me, and what is the significance of this science? It's probably the most controversial topic in biology at the moment. So, loosely speaking, well, no, exactly speaking, we know that heredity is conferred by DNA, and DNA has basically four bases, and the order of those four bases determines the genetic code, your genes, your heredity, and so on. It turns out that one of those four bases can be modified in the courses of controlling whether a gene, a particular gene, is expressed or not, and that is called an epigenetic modification. This is all very well and, and reasonable as a means of um, controlling genes. The controversy comes because it has been proposed that those modifications can be inherited by the next generation. It's also been proposed that they, these modifications are sometimes made in response to the environment. 
So this will take us back to the days of Lamarck, who caused famine in Russia in the um, 1940s by advocating that you could use the environment to modify strains of crops, which would then grow and grow better in the winter. Uh, ever since then, it's been regarded as a complete heresy that the environment could change genetic information and change heredity. If this reading of epigenetics were true, we would be back um, into that situation. I think my, my, my personal take on this is that the evidence is not there. There, is, there are some very interesting data showing that um, within a body, a cell line can inherit a modification. It's much less clear whether that can apply across generations, but it would be uh, completely revolutionary in the sense of how the environment might control genetics if it were true. I don't think it is true, but uh, as I say, there are quite a lot of people who believe in it. And I must say, it's a very confusing area. And the, the great level of confusion is shown by the fact that many of the people doing the research are pretty confused about it themselves. <laughs> um, well, that kind of leads me to my next question. Uh, with, with, you know, as distinguished a career as you have had and the influence you've had on science and just, you know, uh, molecular biology, so forth and so on, I'm assuming you've come into a lot of peers. You have a lot of folks, your colleagues. What has been their response to your book? Uh, are they are they kind of giving you some attaboys or are they saying, hey, you know, wait a minute, I, I don't necessarily agree with some of this. Stuff. So what? Are you, how are your peers t reacting to your book? Well, the book was only published last week, so I haven't had a lot of reaction yet. Um, when I was talking with people while I was writing the book, they were mostly very encouraging about it. Um, but I'm expecting some criticism once the, once the book starts starts to disseminate, but I haven't had it yet. Well, Doctor, uh, I do want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on The Edric Show and sharing uh, just a, a different and refreshing view of science uh, for, for lay people like me. Uh, really gives us something to think about. <clears throat> and a lot of these questions, especially now with AI and everything, uh, you know, people really need to take these these issues seriously and have some conversations, not just amongst the science community, but also the lay people like me, because it will affect everything that we do. So um, my last question for you is ultimately, uh, what do you want people to walk away from after reading your book? I'd like them to understand that we need to support science and that we shouldn't try to control what research people do. Coming out of the Second World War in 1945, there was a view that we should support science because you would never know where it would lead, and that was the basis for all sorts of medical and industrial developments. And we seem to have sort of lost sight of that view in recent years. There's much more of a demand for relevance. I think this is a terrible mistake. You simply never know which research is going to go in which direction. The gene editing technique, for example, which is one of the more powerful techniques in biology at the moment, and which, as you pointed out at the beginning, poses uh, some serious ethical questions. This came out of some really arcane research in bacteria 20 years ago. Easily 20 years ago, you could have said, we're not going to support that research because it, 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 it's a very odd property of bacteria, has no relevance to humanity, will never, never mean anything significant. And there we are 20 years later with a gene editing technique. Um, when we think about how do we want to cure cancers? How do we want to deal with HIV, with AIDS, all these sorts of problems? It's a, it's a real mistake to say, let us focus our research on the problem, because you never know where the answer is going to come from. It may come right out of 
feel from somewhere that you have no idea about at the moment. And so my take home message is really support science um, because we don't know where it's going. If we knew where it was going, it wouldn't be nearly so interesting anyway. <laughs> well, doctor, if more people want more information about you or the book or where they can get the book, uh, where can they go to get the information? The book is published by Coldspring Harbor Press, and there's information about it on their website. It's also, of course, available on Amazon and bookshops and so on. I have a, a website, but I'm afraid it's not about science. It's a blog about wine, which is my <laughs> other interest. Well, Dr. Benjamin Lewin, author of Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. Again, I thank you so much for taking time to come on The Edric Show, and I really appreciated our conversation. It was a pleasure. And I must say, I don't always get asked such penetrating questions. <laughs> well, you know, this is this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. That's the uh, that's the tagline of the show. And I hope to bring that uh, each and every week to my, my listeners. So thank you very much, sir. And uh, as the doctor said, this is The Edric Show, uh, intelligent conversation with interesting people. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, go ahead and hit that notification bell and you will be notified when I post uh, interesting content like this each and every week. I am your host, Edric Jerome. Thank you for tuning in and I will catch you on the next episode.